With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Deb Blaschenberg. I'm your host for Yoga Birth Babies, and today we're going to talk about how to overcome mom guilt, martyr mode, and perfectionism. And to have this conversation, I have Dr. Pooja Lakshman. She is a board-certified psychiatrist and writer specializing in women's mental health and perinatal psychiatry and a frequent contributor to the New York Times parenting section. Pooja and I really take a deep dive into all three of these topics. We talk about some tips, advice to break some of these habits. We talk about how to get partnerships a little bit deeper for handling the postpartum period. She just really unloads a lot of great information, especially taking the burden off of the mother figure. I think you're really going to enjoy that. Before we get to the conversation, I want to say a thank you to all of my students that have been writing in about their experience. We don't get to see each other as much straight after baby, so I've been getting a lot of emails. And I just got one from Maggie yesterday. I just want to share this. She says, it made such a difference to my labor this time around, having started prenatal yoga classes with you at nine weeks. I felt like I had so many options for laboring positions and felt confident in my choices to enable a more functional labor and birth. So yay, thank you so much for letting me know that. I really, really appreciated getting that email. So keep them coming. We have our online classes, our prenatal classes every single day with replays. And if you do come to class, having heard about this from the podcast, make sure you give me a special hello. We also have all our workshops online, so everything's there. We are also in our teacher training. We're starting our next November and December 85-hour teacher training next week. We just finished with a really, really special group, our September and October training. They were really fantastic. Thank you guys for working so hard. So if you are interested in prenatal yoga, check out our website, prenatalyogacenter.com to find out about studying with myself and my co-teacher, Caprice. And if you're thinking, you know, I'm not really wanting to take that deep dive into prenatal, but I get a little anxious when a pregnant student shows up for class. I've got a course for you. It's called Who's Afraid of the Pregnant Yogi? And then one called Teaching the Postnatal Students. So I have all the yoga teachers covered with whatever is going to serve their needs. Okay. I think I said everything I wanted to. So let's take a quick break and we come back. Please, please, please enjoy my conversation with Pooja. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah Soft, made to last. 
Shop now at hannahanderson.com. Hi, Pooja. How are you? I'm doing so well. It's so great to be here. I'm so excited to be on the show. Thank you. I am so excited about the topic we're going to cover because I feel like as a mom of two kind of youngish kids, I have all of these, the mom guilt, the morning <laughs> perfectionism. When I came upon this, I'm like, oh, she knows me. She's talking about me. And I think I'm not alone. So I'm really excited to pick your brain. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that um, these issues are sort of universal experiences for women and moms in our culture. So um, I'm just always excited to talk about it. <laughs> so let's jump into a little bit about you and what drew you towards perinatal psychiatry. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I grew up, um, my parents were born in India, so, um, I'm South Asian. And for, for listeners who are familiar with South Asian culture, you could definitely say it is, um, patriarchal. And so, um, you know, I think a big part of my passion for women's mental health kind of grows from or stems from that environment of, of, growing up in a, in, in a culture where I was always taught that girls couldn't do what boys can do or mm -hmm. girls had to be protected, um, in some way. And so, um, in undergrad, I went to the university of Pennsylvania and I majored in women's studies and the biological basis of behavior. And I went to medical school and I, I thought I was going to do OBGYN because I really just wanted to spend time with women and talk with women and help women. Um, but then I hated being in the OR. Um, and so I was like, oh no, that's, that's not going to work. Um, I did my psychiatry rotation last and I just felt like psychiatry was just this amazing, uh, field where you got to talk to people about what really matters. You kind of, you, you had the privilege of really being able to, um, understand people's lives and kind of what makes them tick. And, um, it, it it's such a unique field, um, and, and it's one that, um, I think you, you have the capacity to, to really help someone in their lowest times. And I think that's what drew me then to women's mental health, obviously from my background. So women's studies major, but also, um, you know, this particular period, motherhood is one where women are particularly vulnerable for experiencing depression or anxiety, even if you've never had any type of history of mental health problems, but you're also a lot more motivated to get help because you kind of recognize for the first time that this isn't just me. This is also impacting my kids. This is impacting my family. Um, I mean, I wish it didn't have to be that way. I wish it didn't have to be that for women to actually <laughs> seek help. It's because of, you know, other people in their lives, but, but that's just the world that we live in. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that I feel like I, I can really make an impact in my patients' lives. And, and that's really nice. The other thing I love about perinatal psychiatry is that my patients get better. Um, you know, postpartum depression, postpartum anxieties, these are not life sentences. They respond to psychotherapy, they respond to medication. Um, and so to be able to watch somebody kind of come out from underneath that cloud, uh, it's, it's really inspiring. And, um, I just, I just love it. That's so great. And it's funny, <laughs> as you were talking about 
people doing this for their family. And it feels like that kind of ties into the whole martyr, martyr mode that Mm -hmm. it's still about, it's not about them. It's about them, but the motivation is still the external. If I don't take care of myself, it's going to affect the others. Instead of, Mm -hmm. I don't take care of myself, I'm going to be upset or sad, or I'm going to suffer. So it's still a reflection of pretty much what we're talking about. Right. Kind of being in this, in this position, the serving position where you're kind of always taking care of everybody else and putting yourself second or third or fourth on the list. Exactly. So let's talk about, I know you have a course we're going to talk about, but you define these three, the mom guilt, the martyr mode and the perfectionism as the triple threat. Can you break each one down a little bit to what you mean by them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, and the reason that I define them as the triple, triple, triple threat is because, uh, I see them in my patients all the time. Even if you're not suffering from postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety, these three little or not little, these three big <laughs> issues, uh, are just everywhere. And so when I say mom guilt, what I'm talking about is that constant sense that you're doing something wrong. No matter what decision you make, you're always wondering and thinking that there could have been a way that I could have done this better. So I'll just give you an example that I like to share. So a couple of years ago, I was co-facilitating a mom's group. And this was in DC, in Washington, DC, where I live and where I practice. And, and there was a mom there with her baby who was about, I think maybe a month old or something like that. And this was a woman who, you know, worked at a high power law firm in DC, very well educated, professional. And she was like, you know, my, my boss just told me that I can take an extra two weeks of maternity leave. And I just don't know what to do because I feel bad, you know, leaving more work for my team. They're going to have to pick up more slack and they've already had to do so much while I was away. Um, but then if I don't take it, I feel bad because obviously I want to spend more time with my daughter and, and I would feel horrible not giving that to her if I could. And I was just kind of like, is there any option here that doesn't make you feel horrible? And I think that like framing the guilt issue in that way is just so helpful because it helps women see that this isn't something like this isn't me. It's not possible that in every single situation I'm making the wrong choice. (laughs) I like to think of guilt as sort of like a check engine light that's going off in our brains that, that has like lost its meaning, you know, and, and we can talk more about this. Like, I think that the guilt piece, the mom guilt, it's coming from our culture. It's not coming from us. Uh, but that's how I think about mom guilt. And then when it comes to martyr mode, when I think about, and I wrote a piece for the times, uh, on this right around mother's day this year about how moms don't need to be martyrs. You know, when we think about a martyr, a martyr is somebody who makes themselves so small, who, who hurts themselves in order to, uh, make other people feel better, who will sacrifice themselves for the sake of their children. And I mean, we see messages all the time of, of moms who are doing that and who are encouraged to do that right from the beginning, right? When we live in this culture that, you know, kind of lionizes breastfeeding and exclusive breastfeeding, right? Um, so there's just all of these ways where you're sort of taught that, sacrificing your own, uh, happiness and your own, um, well-being and identity and identity exactly is, is then going to lead to you being a better mom and your kids being better children. Um, 
And I think that messaging is just so toxic. And then finally, we get to perfectionism. And especially for my moms that are, you know, type A, high achievers, sort of linear, like to have a plan. Um, One of the ways that I talk about this in my class is that, um, you know, the experience of having a newborn is just a completely chaotic and disorganized system, right? And so you're trying to bring order to this chaos. And if you're somebody who's type A, you just want so badly to know that you're doing it right. You really, really want to know that you're a good mom. And so it's so common to then kind of overextend that and get into this perfectionistic thinking where everything becomes black and white. And again, nothing's good enough. You know, you're kind of aiming for this elusive goal that doesn't actually exist. Um, and in that process, you're discounting all the good that's actually there. Um, so I, I think all of them are related, right? But some, I, so everybody kind of struggles more with one versus the other, I think. I don't know. I'm listening to this and I'm like, oh, I, I see myself in a lot of these. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, maybe that, I don't know what that means, but I think a lot of us, you know, I talk to my friends all the time and especially right now when many of us are trying to work and, and kids might be home or there might be hybrid learning, feeling the guilt of like, I'm not doing anything quite well enough. And then the taking on the load and wishing they could be doing it better. Yeah. Yeah. And this is where I really try and, um, turn this back on our culture and our society, because as women, you know, there's research that shows that women are just so much more likely to internalize problems. So as a mom, it's so easy, especially in this COVID world that we live in where, you know, childcare, you know, there's, there's not for many families, there's not good options for childcare. Mom is the one who overwhelmingly has had to cut back from working outside the home and is, you know, managing all of the Zoom schooling and things like that, right? So instead of like looking to the outside and saying, wow, you know, our government should be providing better solutions and wow, like our culture really is not supporting families. Instead, we kind of turn it on the inside and we say, these solutions don't exist. So I must it must be a lack within me as a mom when the reality is that our, our society is failing families. Right. And so, um, you know, I talked about this in my New York times article too, when I I got to interview Martha Beck, who I'm not sure if you know her, she's incredible. She's a sociologist and she was Oprah's life coach. And she wrote this amazing book in the nineties called the breaking point, all about this paradox that women face where we're kind of, um, you know, we're incentivized to be these high achieving women in the workforce and, you know, to be ambitious, et cetera, and individualistic. But then at the same time, we get this messaging, like we're supposed to give everything up for our families and constantly um, service everybody else. And it's impossible to reconcile those two value systems. And like, there's no solution for that. And yet I so think that in many- the end, what happens yeah, I was gonna say, I well, think I was gonna many, say, in the end, what yeah. happens is that we, people think that they can somehow yes, figure that's out what a better system. Say. If they just work harder, if they just, you know, figure out the right life path, yes. somehow you can, you can win in that game. That's exactly um, what I was thinking is 
I, I've been there myself thinking, okay, I'm going to still have, you know, my job, my company that I carry and, and be the, the parent that shows up to do everything. And then there's the guilt where my kids are like, well, why can't you come into school and be part of library? And I'm like, ah, I think they're, you know, it's, and then we look on social media of like everyone's happy and cheery and smiley and there's that perfectionism. And I do feel like it's just the kind of the society's not setting women up and mothers up for a lot of success to straddle both worlds very easily. Right. Right. And I guess the model is sort of just do more, just try yes. harder, stay up um, longer, work harder here, do more there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that part of why I started Gemma, my new company and, and with our first class is sort of like looking at wait, this isn't working. You know, we need to figure out a way to reframe this and, and take the pressure off of us as individuals, because these are social problems that, that people are trying to solve with perfectionism or, you know, through martyr mode. Right. But, but it's not working, right. We're actually just making ourselves miserable. Um, and I think a lot of times like women, eventually moms understand that, but, um, it's just not spoken about, I think. And, and you're right. Social media makes it a lot worse because you see these, you know, mom influencers <laughs> on Instagram with these kind of perfectly curated feeds. And, um, it's really hard not to compare yourself. Even though that. I think many of us know it's mm-hmm. curated, it's, you know, somewhat staged. There's still, uh, at least for me, they're still like, Oh, they really are doing it better. So where do you think some of this idea of the mom perfectionist stems from? Do you think it's comparison? Do you think it's, again, the vision that we see in social media or TV or movies? Where do you think that's coming from? Yeah, I think it's a combination. I mean, I do think it, it definitely comes from social media. It's kind of like seeing, seeing this curated stuff. Um, I think it comes from, you know, just decades of TV and movies showing sort of a certain vision of family life where it's supposed to be relatively easy and, you know, everybody's going to sit around the table for dinner and we're going to have this lovely time when we all know in reality, you know, it's just pure chaos. Um, I think also, though, that like we live in this world where there's a right way to do everything. Like it's just such a kind of goal oriented productivity focused type of life that many of us live here in America. Um, so like, if you look at, you know, the whole industry that plays to moms, you know, it's like you take a class to learn how to, um, have a natural childbirth. Right. (laughs) And then you take a class to learn how to like get your baby to sleep. And then you have to like, you know, there's just like all of this information that you have to take in to do it the quote unquote right way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of that is like the culture of becoming a mom and the identity of, you know, what does it mean to be a mom? And like, how do I do a good job as a mom? You know, if we think about it, like motherhood is this incredible, like has this incredibly steep learning curve, but you don't get any type of like on the job training you know, you just get kind of thrown in. So I think what we've done is we've sort of then taken like our model of schooling and sort of put that onto motherhood and said, okay, here's all the ways that you're supposed to do it. Um, it's a, you know, it's hard, I think, because, and I don't want to like shame women with this stuff, because I think, like you said, when you, 
you, you know, when you saw the course, you're kind of like, oh no, I, I check all these boxes. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean about me? You know, no, it, it just, it means that you're a normal mom. You know, everybody feels these things. And, and I think it's, the goal isn't to never feel perfectionism or the goal isn't to never have your martyr moments. The goal is to turn the volume down a little bit and to understand that this is happening, to have a better sense of what are my triggers and like, what are the ways that I can try and make small adjustments? Yeah. So it doesn't become, it doesn't cloud over everything we do. It could be there, Uh a small voice instead of the biggest voice in our head. So let's talk a little bit about the the mom guilt. We've talked a bit about that, but why do you think it's so prevalent, prevalent in our culture? And what are some ways that we can break some of this strain and stress that mothers feel? There's this great image on social media recently of this mother kind of bent over with this huge world on her back. Like she's literally carrying the world and the responsibility. And I feel like that just epitomizes so much of what so many parents feel. Yeah, absolutely. I think the guilt comes from the fact that women and moms are being asked to do too much. Like, again, it like comes back to this external environment where what we're being asked to do is impossible. And instead of like facing, because it's actually quite devastating to face the fact that it's impossible. Um, instead we turn that into guilt because in some ways it's easier to feel guilt, right. Than to feel the fact that, um, these expectations that are being put on moms actually, they're, they're unreal, completely unrealistic. Right. So I think one of the things that, um, that I talk about in the class and and that I share with my patients is you really have to figure out how to um, diffuse your connection to that mom guilt thought. So um, there's this concept called cognitive diffusion, and it comes from a type of therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy, um, ACT for short. And ACT is a little bit different than other types of psychotherapy because instead of trying to change your thoughts, it focuses on accepting difficult thoughts and feelings and getting distance from them. So when your when your mind is kind of telling you, wow, gosh, you really blew it today. Like you're just, you're a horrible mom or, you know, you handled that meltdown. Like that was a horrible thing that you said to your son. You know, you just did a bad job. What you want to do is you want to actually be curious about those thoughts as opposed to just accepting them as the truth. So like some little small ways to practice cognitive diffusion are to put the phrase, my mind is telling me in front of some of those thoughts. So to say, my mind is telling me that I'm a bad mom. My mind is telling me that I didn't do a good job with my kids today. And just kind of adding that little phrase in gives you some space. Like it kind of has you be able to say like, oh, this is something my mind is saying, but I don't need to hear it as the truth. Um, And then there's other exercises that I teach that are um, basically ways to build that cognitive diffusion muscle so that you can start to visualize your thoughts as um, things that you can observe and 
uh, allow to kind of pass as opposed to latching onto and getting hooked onto them. I can totally understand that. Instead of grabbing it and going down the drain and just berating yourself, I did such a bad job putting some distance. That makes so much sense. Mm -hmm. Oh, Mm -hmm. I like that. This is exciting. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the thing with that too is like part of the problem is like when you get hooked onto it and you, you, like, like you said, you kind of go down the drain or the rabbit hole of that I'm a bad mom thought that leads to all these other behaviors that are in the end more problematic. You know, maybe that leads to you isolating and not being present with your kids. Maybe that leads to you skipping your workout or to, you know, kind of like mindlessly scrolling on social media, which then has kind of like a negative reinforcement pattern. So the thought itself isn't necessarily the problem. It's sort of like all of the behaviors that come after it. Um, so that's another thing that we kind of focus on in acceptance and commitment therapy, kind of that the thoughts don't need to be necessarily so dangerous and that we can find a way to coexist with them, turn the volume down, diffuse from them, um, and learn to kind of live by our values. Oh, this is so important. I'm so excited about this conversation. (laughs) All right. When we come back, we're going to take a quick break. I want to talk about different generations and the pressures that they feel. Because my mom and I have definitely had some conversations and my recollection of how I grew up and she didn't feel some of these things. All right. We're going to take a super quick break. We'll be right back. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save big money at Okay, we're back. So as I was mentioning, I didn't feel like my mother's generation felt these same pressures, the guilt, the perfectionist, the martyr mode, as much as the generation that I'm feeling I'm a part of mothers. What do you think's changed and caused these new pressures? Or maybe I was just oblivious and they did. But I remember my mom playing a lot of tennis and seeming to quite enjoy her life. Yeah, well, I think there's been studies looking at this that show that working moms now actually spend the same amount or more time parenting their children than stay-at-home moms did a couple generations ago. Um, so, so it's definitely bearing out in the data as well. And I think that we can link it to a couple different phenomenon. One being, um, you know, what's called sort of intensive mothering, where hands-on parenting or hands-on mothering to be particular was sort of becoming this prominent notion in psychology and sort of like in pop culture and things like that, where more and more women were sort of encouraged to be constantly engaged as parents 
um, in, in, and constantly monitoring, you know, the developmental milestones and all the different things that you can do for your baby to make sure that it's, you know, he or she's developing appropriately. And I see this in my patients now, kind of like this anxiety and this pressure, even when you have like a two week old to feel like, okay, I need to make sure that my baby's on track and sort of like, he's only two weeks old, you know, (laughs) give him a little time. (laughs) But I think that, um, there's this fear of sort of falling behind. And again, it comes, it, 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 I think it hits on that comparison with other moms or with other families. And also there does feel like there's a performative element to it. Mm -hmm. Um, and when we look at kind of perfectionism, I think it's really important to ask yourself this question, like, who is my perfectionism serving? You know, Mm -hmm. and, and usually it's serving you. It's, it's not really serving your kids if you're being really honest with yourself. That's so true. I'm thinking about that. Like, and also as I kind of reminds me of what I was telling my son the other day, it's like, nobody, he was, he was on zoom and he's, he had got a cast off recently and he's like, I don't want to see my cast. And I'm like, no one really is paying that much attention to you. I'm like, you're, you're great to us. You're awesome to us, but I don't think people care that much. And mm-hmm. I feel like <laughs> it's kind of the same in the perfectionist as moms is we're doing it for ourselves when the other moms are just trying to keep afloat and they're probably not even noticing like what's going on with, you know, next door neighbor mom. Right. Right. Absolutely. Everybody's kind of in their own little world trying to exactly like you said, kind of keep afloat. Um, Right. Right. Yeah, I tell him like, you're not that important. You're important to us, but you're not that important. And not saying other moms aren't, but like, yeah, we're, I think we try to do it for ourselves and maybe try to impress so-and-so keep up with the Jones in that way. But yeah, you're right. It's more detrimental to ourselves and, and our kids too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think it also comes from a place of really wanting to be competent and have a sense of mastery um, you know, that's something that our culture just prizes so much. And and so I understand that, you know, all these feelings are, are completely natural to have, but it's just that it becomes problematic when it's the predominant feeling, right? When it completely takes over and there's no room for spontaneity and play and, and just being able to be present and enjoy the time with your family. You know, my moms that struggle with perfectionism, that a lot of times they'll say that they feel like they're managing their family, but not actually part of the family. Is there a tie in, I might be totally off here. I'm just kind of putting some thoughts together between like perfectionism and anxiety or perfectionism and depression or all three of these, or is it just a, if this is coming up for you when you're working with your clients, the martyrdom, the martyr mode, the perfectionism, the guilt, do you look for an underlying something else, anxiety or depression, or can they live totally without that? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. And it's actually something that we talk about in the class because it's, it's a spectrum. So if you're suffering from postpartum depression or if you're suffering from postpartum anxiety, it can make it a lot more difficult to set boundaries. It can make, it can make it a lot more difficult to practice cognitive diffusion or some of the other tools and strategies that you can use to fight back against the triple threat. So while the triple threat doesn't necessarily correlate to clinical conditions. If you have a clinical condition, these, these things can show up and become more difficult to cope with. I would say the biggest place that it shows up is with the guilt and difficulty with setting boundaries, because obviously with all three of these different scenarios, being able to set boundaries 
with family members, with friends, to set boundaries with your own thoughts and feelings, that's a huge part of the skill set, right? To be able to move past this stuff. And when you're struggling with depression or when you're struggling with anxiety, um, it is so much more difficult to uh, bear any type of bad feeling, right? And the idea that someone else could be disappointed with you or could be angry with you is going to be much, much harder to tolerate if you're depressed or if you're anxious. Um, so, so yeah, so when I'm working with my patients, I definitely am screening for all those things and treating all those things. Um, so then we can kind of get to work on actually dealing with this stuff because if there is an underlying clinical issue, then it's going to make it much harder. That makes so much sense. Yeah. I was just wondering if it was kind of like a symptom of you, you see that and you're like, Ooh, let's take a beat and look a little bit deeper. And, and clearly, wow. Yay for me. I was right about that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you were talking about boundaries and saying no. And I know a lot of us, I'm not the best with this. In fact, I'm really bad with it. What are some skills for set, learning to set boundaries and say no, especially with kids? Oh, I know. Like mm. I speak of it. My husband and I are always like, we have to have better boundaries. I'm like, yes. And then I cave. So what are some ways <laughs> to strengthen the skills, especially the saying no? Oh, so mm-hmm. many of us take too much on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the saying no is something that one thing I like to say is that it's, it's like building a muscle, right? It's going to feel really uncomfortable at first. So you have to expect that you have to expect growing pains. You have to start small. It's like going to the gym, right? And you have to start with like the three pound weights and work your way up. So the best way to learn how to say no is to sort of to every week, make a little micro decision that you're going to set a limit with or set a boundary with. And it, it, it should be a really something small so that you can build your confidence. Um, the other thing is that setting boundaries and saying no is really about recognizing that it's up to you to make these choices. You know, it took me such a long time as a medical student and then a resident, you know, I spent years kind of going through the medical system where you don't really have choices. You just, you sort of sign up <laughs> for this career path. And then there's all these hoops that you need to jump through. And it wasn't until I finished all my training and schooling that I recognized I, whenever anybody asks me to do something, I actually always have three choices. I can say yes, I can say no, or I can negotiate. And it's always up to me, right? And yes, there will be consequences if I say no. Like somebody might get angry with me. Someone might be upset. There might be a temper tantrum. Um, but then my work is bearing those consequences and, and deciding if it's worth it. It's not about whether I want to say no or not. So usually when I'm working with patients, they actually are very clear on when they don't want to do something, like when they're dreading going to a social obligation and they, and they really just don't want to go. Right. But what the the fear with the saying no, or the resistance is the worry that they're not going to be able to bear the consequence of that. No. The other thing is that women, I think really underutilize the negotiation piece of it. Um, so maybe if you get a request commit to come in, um, you know, for a phone call or meeting or something like that, it's really easy to either just automatically say yes, or, to be like, wow, I just really wish I could say no. But what about if you actually took a minute to say, well, I actually would like to do this, but I can't do it on Friday. Can we do it on Monday instead and actually have that back and forth? Um, it's messy, right? Like you have to be okay with the messiness of it. Um, one of the ways that I think about, about saying no also is that like 
saying no is actually kind, you know, it's a way to, to have people get to know you better in that you're actually teaching other people. This is what my priorities are. The reason that I can't do this is because I'm focusing on X, Y, Z right now. So you're kind of like sharing more of yourself by setting this limit. I know for me, I always would rather, like, I'd rather have a straight no than like a wishy-washy yes. Yeah. Or a guilty yes, you know, that never feels good either. I'm so guilty (laughs) of that too. Like, honestly, when you said there's three, I'm like, what are the, what's the third? Like the the negotiation (laughs) didn't even occur to me. And Mm -hmm. I'm glad that you mentioned that because I'm probably not that alone in that because, oh, I've done the guilty yes. I've done the sheepish no, but I've never really done the negotiation. Oh, that's a Mm -hmm. really good tool. Yeah. And I think especially right now, as we're leading up to the holidays and the pandemic and sort of all of these difficult decisions that moms are having to make about how you're going to spend the holidays. I mean, really, we need to be leaning on that negotiation piece of what feels right for us, what feels right for the other families. How can we meet in the middle? You know, that makes total sense. So there was something else as I was writing up my, my questions for you, as I was thinking about the family structure and, and this is something I've talked to a lot of my friends about. A lot of them feel like the burden drips down and maybe this is back to the martyr mode, but drips down. They carry the family. What are ways? How do we restructure families so that the mother or the mother figure can feel some, feel less burden? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, so there's this, this concept that I, I'm sure you've heard about before called maternal gatekeeping. Um, explain that. Explain. Have you heard of this? I have, but explain that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So maternal gatekeeping is essentially when, when a mom or whoever's the primary caretaker, um, ends up discouraging other would-be caretakers uh, from from actually being able to participate in caretaking because they are having trouble kind of giving up control. And and actually, this is a place where anxiety can come in as well. Um, It can be really hard to watch your partner make mistakes. And um, with maternal gatekeeping, I, I think it's really important that moms look at, like, what is the role that I play in in this family system that's been set up. I'm not saying that it's all mom's fault, right? Like, look, we've talked about the fact that like, this is the culture that's kind of reinforced this environment. But I do think that in a lot of places, moms can really look at like, what role do I play in continuing this um, behavior pattern? So if you have a partner that is willing to help out and is trying to help out, but every time he changes a diaper, you're telling him he could be doing it differently or every time he's like washing pump parts, you're rewashing them because he's not doing it right. Like what incentive does he have to keep helping? The thing that he learns is like, well, I'm just not that good at this or she wants it done a different way. So I'm not going to engage. And that's harmful because part of growing into your identity as a parent is actually making mistakes and figuring things out, right? It's like feeling this sense of mastery. So you need to give your partner, or if there's another caregiver in the house, you need to give them the full space to be in that role and be messy, you know, and figure it out for themselves. The data shows that the more time, um, you know, in heterosexual couples, the more time that a father is at home right after the baby's born, 
um, the more likely that child rearing responsibilities will be uh, more equitable. So if there is an option to take paternity leave and to have both of you at home at the same time, I know a lot of times for financial reasons, people try and stagger it, but if it is at all possible to have an overlap, that can be really helpful because then he's kind of learning the same skill set that you are right in the beginning. Um, but these are things I think that couples really have to work hard on to try and um, work through some of these behavioral patterns that come up. And that's probably something also that can reflect in the relationship. I know when I was a doula, I would talk about dynamics while someone is in labor. So if somebody was the doer or the kind of people pleaser, then that person, especially if it's the person in labor, it's not going to fill that, that dynamic in the relationship. So if the relationship already is the, I'll say the mother person already is kind of the organizer and the doer. And that needs to be discussed beforehand because she may likely just take that role and that can be too overwhelming. So that could really back things up to how, what's the dynamic? How do they relate? How do they split responsibilities so that the mother doesn't keep loading more and more. Am I making any sense? It's just kind of got to work it through my brain. (laughs) Absolutely. And I I often say, you know, and so much of this comes back to the mental load, which I talk about in our, in the course, um, moms are the CEOs of the household, right? Um, there's a great book. I'm sure you've probably heard of it. Um, my friend Eve Rodsky wrote it. It's called fair play. I don't know Um, that book, but I will look it up. It's an awesome book. Um, it's actually a game that you play with your partner and it's all about making household organization more equitable. She's a lawyer and her background is in organizational management. And so it's interesting because we both come to this, this same type of work except from different angles. So she's sort of like, we need to look at the family and we the household. Contract. <laughs> right. We need a contract. Like this should be run like a business, right? Like when you have, when you're responsible for the trash. That means that you also buy all of the trash bags. That means you take out the trash. That means you treat, clean the trash can, right? Like you do all things that have to do with the trash. Um, so, so that's a great book and a great, um, little exercise to read with a partner. It's great if you can kind of look at it even before you have kids, cause it, it's, it includes just really good prompts for some of these conversations to look at what are our patterns already and so how can we try and create yeah, some of these gonna, issues that are going to come up? Because they're going to show up even more because then we think postpartum, those first 12-ish weeks, years, who knows, um, everyone is <laughs> is tired. They're trying to figure it out. So they may not be showing up at their best. And so then they fall back to their habits and then they fall back to their couple dynamics. But if you, I love this idea of the contract, but if you've kind of figured things out a little bit, beforehand, and this seems like it's just good for relationships in general, but you kind of Mm -hmm. figure out, okay, I know I'm going to be tired. Therefore I might be a little bit snippy. I might be a little short tempered. So let's try to negate that by understanding each other's roles and responsibilities. Oh, this sounds brilliant. I'm totally getting this book. (laughs) And, and I think it's, it's just so important. And if you think about the amount of time that people spend on like researching what type of stroller to buy or what brand of breast pump to get or like planning their baby shower. I guess baby showers aren't really a thing right now, but <laughs> before a pandemic, right. It's like, what if we took some of this 
energy that was like focused on the logistics of having a baby and instead invested it into mom's mental health or invested it into looking at how can we better handle the mental load in our family and what are our relationship dynamics going to be in the postpartum period? I just think that there's actually so much that can be done from a prevention standpoint yes. that is actually like pretty low hanging fruit. Like it, it, it's not like reinventing the wheel, you know? Um, but it's just taking the time to sit down and have some of these conversations. And, and, and that's why I decided to start Gemma, my company, because I just felt like there was so much that we could be doing for moms in the postpartum period and for women's mental health in general that that for whatever reason I think people just are intimidated or, or feel like it's too hard. So um Yeah, you're just making it more accessible. I, oh, I love that. All right, we're gonna take a quick <laughs> break when we come back. I want to hear about Gemma, but I have one more question before we get that. So when we come back, one tip or final piece of advice you'd like to offer new and expectant parents. We'll be right back. Okay. So you have years of experience. So I'm going to ask you if there's anything jumping to the front of your mind of one final tip or piece of advice you'd like to offer a new expectant parents. So I think the most important takeaway that I want moms to um, hold on to from this episode is any investment you make in your emotional well-being is only going to pay off exponentially. As a mom, your emotional health and your mental well-being is the foundation for everything else in your family. So, you know, your baby's sleep, your baby's eating, your baby's health, all of these things are impacted by how you feel as a mom. And so I think it's so common for moms to feel like, to feel selfish, to feel like they don't have time to do anything for themselves, to feel like it's not worth it, who has the energy. But the thing is that you really have to look at this as this is an investment in me and, and in my family and in my children. And if I'm not feeling good, then then none of this stuff is going to work. Um, and you deserve to be able to enjoy your family. You deserve to be able to feel like you're actually a part of your family and not just you know, managing the carpool or whatever the merry-go-round is of tasks that are on your to-do list for the day. Um, so I guess, yeah, that, that would be kind of my, my takeaway that, that you're worth it. You're worth putting time and energy into. Oh, that is so, so, so good. And so important. So where can people find your work? Can you tell me a little bit about your new company, Gemma yeah. and, and your course? Cause we've talked about it, but let's just lay it yeah. out there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So basically about a year and a half ago, I got on Instagram, um, as a perinatal psychiatrist for the first time. And, um, you know, even from the beginning, I was just getting so many messages asking, you know, about postpartum depression. How do I know if what I'm feeling is normal? Is it okay for me to take medications. And I just realized that, you know, mom, like this is where moms are on Instagram and they're going to influencers and, and mom influencers to ask these questions and, and they don't have any training. Right. Um, so I was kind of like, you know, where it, where are the resources for this? Right. And, and also just seeing how, you know, as a mom, it's like, you're taking a class to learn how to deliver a baby. You're taking a class to learn how to breastfeed. You're taking a class to learn how to sleep train. None of these classes are focused on the mom. They're all focused on the baby and none of them are focused on mental health. So last year I started researching how to put together an educational platform specifically for women's mental health. And this past spring, I launched Gemma, which is the first 
uh, digital education platform that's dedicated exclusively to women's mental health. And over the summer, I ran our pilot program in which we trained almost 40 women, 39 women in our first course, our pilot course, which is pregnancy, postpartum and mental health. And the feedback was mind blowing. It was just fantastic. Um, you know, women were sharing all the information with their partners, just feeling like they learned so much about how to set themselves up for success in the postpartum period. Um, and so from there, I designed our first on demand digital course, which is called, uh, unloading the triple threat, how to overcome mom guilt, martyr mode and perfectionism. It's only $27. And it's so accessible. Thank you for, <laughs> for doing that. <laughs> yeah. It's really important to me that all of the classes that that we do we we create with Gemma are accessible because I think there's already so much of a gap when it comes to ability to access mental health services mm-hmm. um, that I I don't want to be adding to that I want to be part of the solution that is fixing that um, and so and the great thing about this class is that you it's all digital so you sign up and you get access immediately there's four in depth modules um, that include actionable strategies that you can use for, for the triple threat. There's also a downloadable um, packet of all the summer, the, all the exercises that you could print out and follow along as you go through. Um, and they include things like journal prompts and mindfulness exercises and different like reflective questions to ask yourself to start to think about getting to the root of some of these issues and, and how you can reframe your thinking there's also a Facebook group, so you can kind of discuss how things are going as you go along. And um, you have lifetime access, so you can kind of go through as many times as you want. Again, what I've been hearing from women who have taken the course is that they're, they're sitting through and going through with their partners, actually. And it's been really helpful to kind of read through the information about the mental load and how to accept help and how to set boundaries and have your partner also be able to um, get that information as well. So, um, yeah. So like I said, it's, um, uh, it's called Gemma and the website is, uh, www.gemmawomen.com. And I am on Instagram at women's mental health doc. So you can find me there. And, um, in my bio, you can also access the course from there as well. And, um, yeah, I just, I'm really excited to to connect with more women who are taking it and um, see where things go. And I'll make sure everything is in the show notes so people can find them there. Thank you so much for, for everything you're doing for, for women, especially when to, women's mental health. It's so important. And I, as I think you and I both think, slightly overlooked at times. So thank you for really stepping up and supporting people, new mothers and everyone. And thank you for your time. I appreciate that you popped on and talked to me today. It was absolutely a pleasure. Thank you so much, Deb. You're so welcome. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.